Save a little more this month. Chime checking accounts have features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals 24. Banking services debit card provided by Bancorp, Bank NA, or Stride Bank NA. Members of FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Tracy Jan calling from The Post. Am I President Trump, how are you? Hi, it's Robin at the Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Nicole Ellis. It's Friday, October 18th. Today, President Trump chooses his own hotel as the G7 site. Women's soccer gets a World Cup boost. And how film studio A24 became a Hollywood hitmaker. I think it was in May or June. One of our White House reporters came to us and said, you know, I heard this crazy rumor. President Trump's even thinking about doing the G7 at his Doral Resort. David Farenthold covers the Trump Organization for The Post. At that time, it was like, listen to this crazy idea. It'll never happen. It was on the the same scale as like he wants to annex Greenland or he wants to nuke a hurricane. You know, it's like he wants to do it, but someone's going to stop him. And then in August, when Trump goes to the G7 for this year... We have a series of magnificent buildings. We call them bungalows. All of a sudden, he's talking about it. Uh, It's very importantly only five minutes from the airport. The airport's right next to it. It's a big international airport, one of the biggest in the world. Everybody that's coming, all of these people with all of their big entourages come. And then we got the certainty this week. So we're going to talk about uh, the G7. Uh... We talk about uh, where we're going to do it. We're going to announce today that we're going to do the 46th G7 Summit um, on uh, June 10th through June 12th at the Trump National Doral uh, facility in Miami, Florida. What you're seeing is I I think Trump likes to exploit honor systems. He finds a place where people behave in an honorable way, not because they have to, but because it's expected of them. And he takes advantage of that expectation and does the opposite. We've seen it in the way he handled his charity and the way he handled politics and the sort of norms of campaigning. This is a case where nobody could really stop him. The only reason to stop and not give it to yourself is just propriety. It looks bad. It seems unethical. And if you're willing to ignore all those optics and just do it, nobody can stop you. And that's what he did. What's the reaction been like so far? Well, the reaction from everybody who's not a Republican in Washington is sort of shock and outrage. Uh, This is unprecedented in American history. We've never had a president who awarded a giant government contract to himself. I mean, there's just been nothing like this. I've seen some Republicans in Washington saying, well, you know, I think it sounds unusual, but I think it's okay, or it's not illegal, or Marco Rubio said, you know, I'm just glad he's bringing business to Florida. We learn that A few other resorts were considered, and Doral just somehow managed to be the perfect fit. I think someone said it was like this resort was built for this summit. Well, it doesn't really tell you very much until we know what the other sites were. Uh, You know, they've said they looked at a whole bunch of other sites. I've spent a lot of time trying to figure out what the other sites were without success. What you need to know is what they were comparing it against, right? If they were comparing it against my basement or the, you know, top of Mount McKinley, yes, Doral is the ideal place to have it. But America has a lot of nice resorts. Even Miami has a lot of nice resorts. And you need to know what other resorts they considered to really be able to make sense of that claim that Doral was the best place in America. Considering it only has two presidential suites and at least seven government leaders will be there. And the most important consideration for past G7 events, and think how many 
world leaders are coming, the security challenges of that. People have done them in places that are very, very nice and very, very easy to seal off. You know, small resort towns like in, in Biarritz in France that just had it. The U.S. did it at Sea Island, Georgia, which is this very luxe island off the coast of Georgia. And places where you could put everybody there and draw, you know, basically put a moat around them and put water around them if you can. Do it on an island. Doral is not like that. Doral is in, it's in a, among a bunch of office parks near the Miami airport. It's in the middle of a big crowded urban area. So the whole idea that you're going to be able to put people there and then seal it off. It just isn't going to work like that. And you've been investigating this for a long time, and you checked in with the mayor of Doral incrementally. He said that he was learning about this just the exact same way everyone else was. Yeah. And I saw your tweet that he he said that. What was his response to learning that thousands of diplomats <laughs> and journalists would be descending on his city? I mean, he's happy because it brings a lot of business and attention to Doral. Um, but he also – this is an enormous security challenge that the city of Doral – you know, it's got a small police department. It's got some infrastructure, but it's not going to be just them. It's going to be them leading a force of federal, state, local law enforcement. It's going to be a huge deal and he's got about eight months to plan it. And so he was saying, look, we got to get started on this right away. And no, when I talked to him on the night of the announcement on Thursday night, uh, he hadn't even gotten a call from the White House yet. No, you know, he saw Mick Mulvaney on TV say it like the rest of us did, but he was now affirming calling out, calling the Secret Service, calling all these people saying, you know, what do we do? How do we get started? It's going to be a huge undertaking. We learned from your reporting in May that the Doral was struggling financially. But in the press conference, Mick Mulvaney said Trump doesn't need this business. Is that true? Uh, no. Uh, Doral is in big trouble. Uh, the numbers we've seen, and these are numbers from the Trump organization itself, from 2015 to 2017, so just two years after Trump got into politics, the resort's revenue declined, and most importantly, its net operating income fell 69 percent. It's a huge amount. The Trump organization's own representative went to the county, Miami-Dade County, to ask for a lowering of their property taxes because things were going so badly. She said this property is severely underperforming, and the reason is the Trump name. So this is a property that needs money, that needs business, has been losing it extremely rapidly in the last few years. And June is an even better time for them because June is traditionally one of the slowest months at Doral. It's hot in Miami. People, you know, your normal wintertime snowbirds aren't there. Normally, the occupancy rate at the hotel in June is like 38%. So you're talking about bringing thousands of people to a hotel that normally is 60% empty. So one of the main differences with the Doral is that the Trump organization actually owns it. They're not just licensing the Trump name. And I'm wondering what that means in terms of the debt that Trump has taken on in order to sustain this hotel and, and why the stakes are greater here. It's got a significant amount of loans, $125 million worth of loans from Deutsche Bank on this property. That makes it not only one of his most important in terms of the revenue it produces, but also one of his most important in terms of the debt that this property carries. They're, this time, they're only paying the interest on the debt. They're not paying the principal. Um, so it's a huge amount of money. And if they run short, if their operating income goes down further and they have trouble making those debt payments, it could be a huge problem for this for this company. So for Trump, if you were going to look across your golf courses and your hotels, as you said, a lot of them are licensed. A lot of them are, you know, the, the risk of the property success or failure is not really borne by Trump. This one is all his. If it fails, it is his problem alone. So did the White House say that the Doral would be doing this at cost? 
They said a lot of very vague things yesterday, none of which to me are a promise of exactly how they're going to do this. The Trump organization has also said a lot of vague things about not going to, we're not going to overcharge, we're not going to make money off this. What you can do is look at their past behavior with federal customers. When the federal government has come to their property while Trump is president, because Trump is president, how have they treated it? And they haven't done it for free. They haven't done it for cost. When Trump came to Mar-a-Lago with his staff a few years ago at the beginning of his term, they charged $546 per room per night. It was the maximum allowable under federal purchasing rules. So that's not a company that's just charging for housekeeping. They're charging as much as they can possibly get. So maybe they'll make that promise in the future. You know, we're only going to charge the government our costs. If so, we'll report on it. But the important thing to remember there is even if they just charge the government their costs, it's still a huge win for them because this is a time of year when the hotel is normally 60 percent empty. So if, the, if they're filling empty rooms, they're paying uh, – you know, they're able to pay costs that otherwise they would have had to eat. So a 100 percent full hotel, even if everyone's just paying their cost, is still a great win for them. So all of this seems to be adding up to the president trying to book out his own hotel that you've reported is struggling. That's right. Is that legal? There's no conflict of interest laws. The conflict of interest laws that apply to other federal employees, right? If you were somebody at the Commerce Department, some staff at the Commerce Department, and you owned a hotel and you scheduled a Commerce Department event at your hotel to prop up your struggling hotel, that would be illegal. Those rules don't apply to the president. That's the way the law is written. The law that applies here, but it's a very old and not very well-tested law, is the famous emoluments clause. The Constitution says that the federal government can't pay the president any money beyond the salary he receives as president and that foreign governments can't pay the president money unless Congress approves. So this is a case where Trump is inviting both the federal government and foreign governments to pay him money all at the same time. There's already a number of lawsuits against President Trump for violating these clauses and I think this is going to become a part of those lawsuits. But the justice system is so slow moving, Trump has just uh, continued to do it, continued to take foreign business and in this case, he's inviting a huge expansion. So the short answer to your question is it appears to be, at least in a lot of legal experts' opinion, against the Constitution, but the mechanism for enforcing that is so slow that it doesn't seem like it would stop Trump in time before the event. How does this fit into your overall reporting on the Trump organization? Is this in line with what you've seen over the past few years? It's what we've seen over the past few years amped up to 11 on steroids. It's the same pattern but far beyond it. What we've seen in so many different places is Trump's businesses, at least the ones where we have statistics on them, are not doing well. They're struggling because Trump's brand is so tarnished, at least with the customers he used to rely on. And then Trump, when he can, uses the presidency to try to put money into those places. So he visits them as president, brings along a security entourage. He holds Republican fundraisers there, brings in money for catering. We've seen that happen at the the D.C. Hotel, at Mar-a-Lago, in Chicago, at his golf course in Los Angeles. But this is so much bigger. Both because the money involved is so much bigger, Doral is such a more important part of his portfolio, and because he's not coming in for one night with a few dozen people or having a Republican fundraiser that fills a ballroom for one evening. This is 10 days of absolute sold out of the hotel, hundreds of people, thousands of meals. It's a huge contract for Doral that he's he's brought in. So the things we've seen him doing, pushing the envelope, his properties start to suffer. He does what he can as president to pump more money into them. This is that times a thousand. Thank you so much, David. Thank you. David Farenthold covers the Trump Organization for The Post.
This summer, the U.S. women's national soccer team took home its fourth World Cup championship. The women's team, they're like superheroes to me. I cried like every single goal. USA! 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 I felt like it was so much bigger than it was, you know? I mean, Rose Lavelle's goal was amazing. Anytime Megan Rapinoe takes the field is amazing. Oh, that's a great day to be American. After the players came back to the U.S., we wanted to know if that enthusiasm still had momentum and if it was sustainable. We are at the Washington Spirit uh, soccer team practice out in Germantown, Maryland. The Washington Spirit is home to two national women's team players, Mallory Pugh and Rose Lavelle. Hello, hello, hello. How are you? How are you? Good, good. I'm Richie. Nicole. Nice Nicole, pleased to meet you. Richie Burke is the head coach. I do think that there has been incredible momentum, uh, and I think it is bigger than people are originally estimating. I think there is corporate people on the sidelines wanting to get involved. I think, you know, men's professional football clubs are now looking at this, wanting to get involved and wanting to support what uh, has been probably for an awful long time a sleeping giant. How have you seen that play out on the field and in the players' mindset? Look, you know, these are world-class players. They're, they're world-class players. Some of the best players in the world play in our league. And I, and I love the fact that they're advancing their own professional careers. I hope they make lots of money. I hope they get lots of recognition. And I've seen quite a bit of progress. And I'm hoping, seriously hoping, that we can get an awful lot more progress for players, not just like Rose, but everybody that's in this NWSL and the women's game. NWSL, that's the National Women's Soccer League. And it's only seven seasons old because all of the other U.S. women leagues have folded. But the hope is that this time around, it'll be different, with a bump from the World Cup and the league's epic new players. The players' lounge is free, so that's a pretty quiet spot um, that we can record the interview and then afterwards. Epic players like this one. I am Rose Lavelle. I'm a professional soccer player for the Washington Spirit and the U.S. Women's National Team. Rose was a breakout star in the World Cup this year. During the final game, she scored a legendary goal, doubling the lead against the Netherlands. Since she's been back, injuries have kept her almost entirely off the field. But at 24, many see her as the future of soccer. There was definitely like a little bit of transition coming back from the World Cup, but I think like we always say whenever, like, whatever team we're on, it's kind of like we're 100% focused on that. It's been disappointing not to have been able to be here the whole time and help support the team in the way that I would have wanted to this season. But nonetheless, it was it's always fun to come here and play, and the fans are awesome. And, um, yeah, it's been great. You've had to weather a lot of different injuries. How do you navigate being competitive at, the professional level and on the global platform and 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 also being gentle with your body and still, you know, showing up? I mean, I think it's kind of a hard balance between, like, pushing yourself enough to stay healthy, but also knowing, like, when it's too much. And I think that, like, is especially true in the offseason when you kind of want to just go and, like, crush it and do, like, so many different things to help prepare yourself for the next season. I mean, anyone that's coming back from injury wants to kind of push it a little, but just was kind of a lot of patience. What has been the biggest change in 
in the sport for you? I mean, honestly, I think every year it's just it has kept growing and the support for women's soccer keeps growing every year. I think back to when I was like in high school and there wasn't like a stable league for players to play in in the U.S. yet. I mean, they had like two leagues before this that ended up folding. And I think now like NWSL is here and it's here to stay, which is really exciting. And I think we've like seen a big bump after the World Cup. And I think now it's just about maintaining that and making sure this isn't just like in every four years type of thing. It's an every year, every day kind of thing. We always say it's a movement, not a moment. I think that's kind of what we're getting to with women's sports in general. Was there a moment where you were like, okay, I'm ready for this. Like I'm ready for the national stage. I'm ready for the global stage. No, I mean, I think it's so funny because everyone always will ask me like, when did you get good at soccer? Like what, like what year was your like breakout year? And I don't ever feel like I had like a breakout year. I feel like I was just kind of like gradually getting better every year and just building on every year. And honestly, like playing at this level has been something I've always wanted to do. Like since I was in third grade and first watched Mia Hamm and Christine Lilly and Julie Foudy play in person, like this was always in the back of my mind since then. But it was just like something I wanted to do, like so much so that I feel like I just kind of like thought it into existence. Piggybacking on, you know, kind of being in the place of your idols when you were nine, what would your advice be to young ladies and little girls who are seeing themselves in soccer and seeing sort of a way to stand in their own greatness? Yeah, I always just say, like, don't doubt for one second that you could be in our shoes one day because that's where it started for me was just like one game I saw them play and I was like, that's where I want to be one day. And then it stuck with me for the rest of my life. And I think I always had that belief in myself, even when I was like a 90 pound freshman in high school and not really getting any like interest from the national team or like little interest from colleges. Like everyone was always saying I was too small. And I think regardless of what people thought of me, I still was like, this is what I want to do. And I didn't let others judgment of me deter me from my final kind of goal. I had a coach tell me once that comparison is the thief of joy. And I feel like that always sticks with me even now because I feel like it's so hard not to compare yourself to people. But I think you have to like respect that everyone's unique and everyone has their own strengths and weaknesses and you have to own yours. Rose Lavelle is a professional soccer player for the Washington Spirit and the U.S. national women's soccer team. Last month, the Washington Spirit played against Megan Rapinoe's team, the Seattle Reign, and they drew record-breaking crowds at Audi Field, which, by the way is the men's stadium in D.C. Well, I'll say it feels fantastic to see this many attendees at a women's soccer game. It's very inspiring and it gives me hope for my daughter and her being treated more equally in whatever she pursues. You know, we were taking our girls to men's games because there wasn't yeah, the same. There wasn't an option to do this. We're not watching guys. <laughs> it is. I see you guys are at the soccer game. Like on a scale of one to ten, how excited are you right now? Hey! It's like a good group of queer folks here, so it feels a lot more like family as opposed to like growy. This just feels like a community that I'm more comfortable in. Now, there's always been this limit on women's like sports, and especially like now on soccer. But I think it's showing that they can go, like they can break that limit, and they can go like however far they can go and there's no limit for them they're unlimited 
you know, anytime these big events come along, whether it's the World Cup or the Olympics for women's soccer, there is a rush of excitement and popularity. But I think this has a little more sustainability. I'm Stephen Goff. I'm the soccer reporter for The Washington Post. I think it's more than a moment. Attendance has jumped. Uh, TV ratings have been pretty good, but certainly the crowds, not just here in Washington, but in every, almost every other city in, in the league have gone up. And you see that emotional connection, you know, emotional connection, not just the players, but the teams. You know, I am a fan of this team and I will stick with them. That's been a challenge for women's soccer leagues over the years. What's been the most interesting aspect of seeing women's soccer shine this time around after the World Cup? I think you've seen them this time around really transcend the sport. I mean, they are leading the charge worldwide for greater equality. The U.S. women aren't just fighting for themselves um, with the U.S. Soccer Federation, but they're setting an example around the world. And you see the players are standing up and they don't want to be considered second-class citizens anymore. We see it politically, too. The impact Megan Rapinoe has had with her campaigns on women's issues and women's sports issues. We have to be better. We have to love more, hate less. We got to listen more and talk less. It's our responsibility to make this world a better place. I think this team does an incredible job of taking that on our shoulders and understanding the position that we have and the platform that we have within this world. Yes, we play sports. Yes, we play soccer. Yes, we're female athletes, but we're so much more than that. This is a soccer team with a purpose and a cause that goes, goes beyond sport. What are some of the challenges women's soccer players are still facing and dealing with? Well, there's the lawsuit that the national team players have against the U.S. Soccer Federation citing gender um, discrimination and pay equity. That is something that's going to play out um, among the lawyers and ultimately most likely in the courts. That's a big challenge. So we talked to Joanna Lohman. I played for 16 seasons and I just retired from the Washington Spirit and became the first player in Spirit history to have her jersey retired. A part of her assessment of, of how women's soccer has become more sustainable is really about pay. I feel great about contributing to the growth of the women's game. But there's also a piece of turmoil because I feel like I'm walking away when the game is actually sustainable. And when you can really make a living playing professional women's soccer, um, you know, I made $20,000, $19,000 a year playing uh, professional women's soccer. And that's not necessarily a wage that you can truly live on and that you can, I would say, be the best athlete you can be. What do you think's changed to make that possible? I think a lot of things have changed. I think culture is shifting, so people are more supportive of, of female athletes. And the U.S. women's national team has just been so utterly successful, and they're such badasses that I feel like they are really leading uh, the culture shift that we're seeing now. You know, the national team here will always have a massive following, as long as they're successful, which they will be for foreseeable future and probably forever. In terms of the league, you know, it needs to grow and it needs to invest more money in its players. For instance, there's no teams, professional teams in the entire state of California 
which probably produces more players than any other state or region in the country. That's a problem. We don't have television access. Um, we don't necessarily have the same type of support and attendance. And so slowly, incrementally, we're going to have to continue to push to truly embrace and support female athletes. And until you see that cultural shift, I still think there's going to be incredible barriers to the women's game growing globally. In places like the U.S., women's soccer is accepted, but it's countries like, you know, Brazil, Argentina, some of the Southern European countries, you know, it's a male-dominated sport. And it's hard for women to get proper coaching, the infrastructure, the fields, and certainly the pay. Jamaica was a great story going, advancing to the World Cup. Well, the players weren't paid. Uh, you know, they don't want to continue playing if they're not going to be paid. You can't blame them. So those are certainly uh, some of the big issues that, that women continue to face in the sport of soccer. Thank you so much, Steve. My pleasure. Stephen Goff covers soccer for The Post. The NWSL championships are October 27th in Raleigh, North Carolina. And now one more thing about a studio that makes money off the kind of movies lots of Hollywood studios don't want to touch. It's very, very, very strange, but I like to think of it as castaway, but like on drugs, probably. <laughs> the premise of this movie is basically that there's this man played by Paul Dano who is on this island, you know, he's stranded, and then a corpse washes ashore and this corpse is farting. The corpse is played by Daniel Radcliffe. So essentially, this man kind of uses him as like a Swiss Army man, hence the title. That's pop culture writer Sonia Rao. And she says that movies like Swiss Army Man are totally on brand for the work coming out of film studio A24. They're the studio that everyone wants to work with, but at the same time, they're that studio that, you know, that like random kid in your film class would be so into and you're like, oh my God, that's so annoying. Like, stop talking about this. We all appreciate the studio. You know what I mean? It's relatively new, but it's already made a number of critically acclaimed movies in recent years and even pulled in a few Oscars. Its latest film, The Lighthouse, comes out this weekend. So H24 is an indie studio. Um, so that already sets them apart from, you know, the big Disney's, the Sony's, Fox, that kind of thing. And within that realm, they're really interesting because ever since they launched in, you know, 2012, 2013, they've been making these movies that land with impact. So Spring Breakers, for example, was one of their early movies, and that's a movie that people recognize. It really gained an audience for how strange and how bold it was at the time. Hi, Grandma. Having so much fun here. This place is special. There's Ex Machina, which was pretty big as well for how it de explored technology and the way that, you know, this robot essentially in the movie is, like, taking over in a way. Whatever comes into your head. Well, you already know my name. And you can see that I'm a machine. What makes an A24 movie an A24 movie is a hard yet simple question. Their brand is almost that their movies don't have one. They're all different. I mean, they don't stick to a genre either. They have sci-fi, horror. They have, like, really heartfelt family dramas. They have all sorts of movies. 
Um, and the kind of the single thread tying them together is that they're really, really unique to each filmmaker. Um, and I think the best examples of that that might come to mind for people would be Lady Bird is one. Give me a number. That movie was really specific to Greta Gerwig's vision. It shoots you from her own upbringing. Um, and it really feels like a movie that you know she made, if you're familiar with her work. Give me a number. I don't understand. You give me a number for how much it costs to raise me, and I'm going to get older and make a lot of money and write you a check for what I owe you so that I never have to speak to you again. And same for Moonlight, which won them an Oscar, Best Picture. Do you sell drugs? That movie is, again, it's really, really specific to Barry Jenkins. It's specific to how he wanted to portray that community. Yeah. And my mom. She do drugs, right? Their movies are really personal, I think. Um, whether personal to the filmmaker, the characters, you know, the story that they're telling. They definitely let the filmmakers take control of what they're doing. And so all of their movies have a really, really strong sense of perspective. And that comes across in a way that, you know, it might not come across with bigger budget movies um, where there is more at stake. I think what I enjoy most about A24 movies is feeling like you're kind of talking to the director in a way. It's not always that you see a movie and feel like you can really tell who made it. So as someone who's really into movies, who, you know, will look everything up on IMDb or Wikipedia after watching a movie at the theater, I like to kind of, you know, connect what you read and what you learn about the person making the movie with what you've seen on screen. And I think they really are a movie for, they're movies for people who like to do that kind of thing. Sonia Rao writes about pop culture for The Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. If you want to get more news about the impeachment inquiry, you can now subscribe to a new podcast feed from The Post. All our audio updates on the inquiry in one place. The latest from Post Reports, Can He Do That?, and The Daily 202's Big Idea, updated whenever news happens. Subscribe at WashingtonPost.com backslash podcasts or search Impeachment Inquiry. Updates from The Washington Post, wherever you get your podcasts. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Matt Collette. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Maggie Pinman, Renny Svernovsky, Jordan Marie Smith, and Ted Muldoon, who also wrote our theme music. The post director of audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Nicole Ellis. Martine Powers will be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.